Hello and good morning and welcome to Passing the Baton Series 3 number 37 and this one is entitled Yeshua HaMashiach Jesus the Messiah and the subtitle if you want one is in the scroll of the book it is written of me which is Hebrews 10 verse 7 and the date is the 29th of May 2010 those of you who have been following this will know that this is in the second in a series of three on the majesty and supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. In March we looked at Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This month we are looking at Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And in July, to complete the trilogy, we will be looking at Jesus the Man. In order to come into the fullness that the Father has for us, we must know exactly who Jesus is. If we are to be like him, we need to know exactly all we can about him. So in looking at Yeshua HaMashiach, we're exploring Christianity from the Jewish perspective. Try to keep this in mind as we go through. And I want to start with an example, really, um, there has been a lot of confusion over the terms the Kingdom of Heaven and the Kingdom of God uh, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke and Mark and John. Because as Gentile believers we've not understood the prevailing culture of Jesus' time and many books have actually been written trying to explain the difference between the Kingdom of Heaven and the Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of Heaven, which Matthew uses, is a veiled reference to God. And this is why we need to look at things from the Hebraic point of view. It was used by the Jewish people instead of using the name of God, because they did not want to misuse the name in accordance with the commandment in Exodus 20 verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Luke, however, more Greek in his outlook, is not afraid to use the term Kingdom of God. So when you boil it down, beloved, it is really quite simple. Us as Greek thinkers have this ability to make simple things extremely difficult. Even today, Messianic believers will use G-D instead of writing God because they do not want to break the commandment not to take the name of their God in vain. Jesus, following the practice of the Jews of his time, would have used the term Malkut Shamayim, Malkut, M-A-L-K-H-U-T, which means kingdom, S-H-A-M-A-Y-I-M, of heaven he would have done the same thing. He was um, a good Jewish boy. He was a Jewish man in a Jewish culture. Much ink, regrettably, has been spilt trying to explain this. Both terms mean precisely the same. The one is Greek, the other is Hebrew, and they're both saying the Kingdom of God. It is no more difficult than that. So what Jesus was talking about when he spoke of the Kingdom of Heaven was God's present dynamic reality which was breaking out on the earth because Yeshua HaMashiach had come. 
the long-awaited king and saviour of the Jewish nation, had arrived. He was saying, I am here to establish my kingdom in your hearts and lives. Maybe we need to rethink the gospel as we give it today. We talk about the need to go to heaven when you die and eternal security and some people major on this, other major on the sin problem. But that is not the message that Jesus came preaching. He came to tell us to have a rethink, repent, change your mind, for his kingdom had come. A kingdom where he was king and his mandate was to set the captives free. He didn't go around saying, believe in me and you'll go to heaven. He didn't say, believe in me and go to church. He went around doing good, healing people, casting out demons, raising the dead and teaching about the kingdom. Our mandate is exactly the same. But beloved, if we don't know what his was, we can't fulfill ours. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's saying the king has arrived and he is reigning and ruling now and blessed are you if you get in on the action. If the Lord will, we will look at uh, this in next month's study which is entitled When Heaven Comes Down where we'll examine how Jesus ex uh, establishes the kingdom in us as we ask for and submit to it when we pray what we call the Lord's Prayer. As far back as Genesis 3.15, God promised a saviour for mankind. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. In Genesis 12, we see God's calling out of a man who had found a nation which would be his peculiar treasure. A nation which means his special treasure, his beloved one, his wife, the one closest to him. And this would be a nation who would represent who God was and be a light to the nations around them. So in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and all my quotes are from the New American Standard, unless I tell you something different, it says this, this is a calling of Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through Abraham, God founds the Jewish nation. So we see Paul saying in Romans 9, 1 to 5, and now this is the Amplified. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience, enlightened and prompted by the Holy Spirit, bearing witness with me that I have bitter grief and incessant anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off and banished from Christ for the sake of my brethren and instead of them, my natural kinsmen and my fellow countrymen, for they are Israelites, and to them belong God's adoption as a nation, and the glorious presence, Shekinah, 
With them were the special covenants made, to them was the law given, to them the temple worship was revealed, and God's own promise announced. To them belong the patriarchs, and as far as his natural descent was concerned, from them is the Christ, who is exalted and supreme over all. God blessed for ever. Amen. So let it be. He's saying that all this was theirs, and they did not recognize Yeshua HaMashiach when he came. Indeed, God had to knock Paul himself off his horse in order to get his attention about who Jesus really was. And we see this in Acts 26:14. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Jesus was a Jew. He still is a Jew. He will come back as a Jew. He came to his own, and his own knew him not. John 1.11, New American Standard Bible again. He came to his own, and those who were his, sorry, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So before we really launch into looking at Jesus as the Messiah, I want to cover a study that I've long wanted to do, and that is the importance of the blood. So to set the study in the correct place, we must first look at the Old Testament sacrificial system and the unchangeable fact that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Without the blood being shed, we are not saved, we have no salvation, and we have no atonement for our sin. The understanding of the importance and the power of the blood is foundational to our Christian walk and our belief system. Some years ago a little tract fell into my hand and it was headed up a Hebrew search for the atonement and it said this just bear with me while I read it to you in the spring of 1898 I was holding some gospel meetings in San Francisco and several times addressed the Jews attending a mission to Israel on one occasion having concluded my discourse the meeting was thrown open for discussion with any Hebrews who desired to ask questions or state difficulties, as also for anyone who had been brought to Christ to relate their conversions. The experience of one elderly Jew interested me greatly, and as nearly as I can, I give his remarks in his own words, though not attempting to preserve the inimitable Hebrew-English dialect. He said, this is Passover week among you, my Jewish brethren. And as I sat here, I was thinking about how you will be observing it. You will have put away all the leaven from your houses. You will eat the matzah, unleavened wafers, and the roasted lamb. You will attend the synagogue services and carry out the ritual and directions of the Talmud. But you forget, my brethren, that you have everything but that which Jehovah required first of all. He did not say when I see the leaven put away, 
or when I see you eat the matzah or the lamb or go to the synagogue. But his word was, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Ah, my brethren, you can substitute nothing for this. You must have blood, blood, blood. As he reiterated this word with ever-increasing emphasis, his black eyes flashed warningly and his Jewish hearers quailed before him. Blood. It is an awful word. That for one who reveres the ancient oracle and yet has no sacrifice. Turn where he will in the book, the blood meets him. But let him seek as he may, he cannot find it in the Judaism of the present. After a moment's pause, the patriarchal old man went on somewhat as follows. I was born in Palestine nearly seventy years ago. As a child I was taught to read the law, the Psalms and the prophets. I early attended the synagogue and learnt Hebrew from the rabbis. At first I believed what I was told, that ours was the true and only religion. But as I grew older and studied the law more intently, I was struck by the place the blood had in all the ceremonies outlined there, and equally struck by its utter absence in the ritual to which I was brought up. Again and again I read Exodus 12 and Leviticus 16 and 17, and the latter chapters especially made me tremble as I thought of the great day of atonement and the place the blood had there. Day and night one verse would ring in my ears. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. I knew I had broken the law. I needed atonement. Year after year on that day I beat my breast as I confessed my need of it, but it was to be made by blood, and there was no blood. In my distress at last I hope opened my heart to a learned and venerable rabbi. He told me that God was angry with his people. Jerusalem was in the hands of the Gentiles, the temple was destroyed, and a Mohammedan mosque was reared up in its place. The only spot on earth where we dare shed the blood of sacrifice in accordance with Deuteronomy 12 and Leviticus 17 was desecrated, and our nation scattered. That was why there was no blood. God had himself closed the way to carry out the solemn service of the great day of atonement. Now we must turn to the Talmud and rest on its instruction and trust in the mercy of God and in the merits of the fathers. I tried to be satisfied but could not. Something seemed to say that the law was unaltered, even though our temple was destroyed. Nothing but blood could atone for the soul. We dared not shed blood for the atonement elsewhere than in the place God had chosen. Then we were left without any atonement at all. This thought filled me with horror. In my distress I consulted with many other rabbis. I had but one great question. Where can I find the blood of atonement? I was over thirty years of age when I left Palestine and came to Constantinople with my still unanswered question ever before my mind, 
and my soul exceedingly troubled about my sins. One night I was walking down one of the narrow streets of that city when I saw a sign telling me of a meeting for Jews. Curiosity led me to open the door and go in. Just as I took a seat I heard a man say, The blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. It was my first introduction to Christianity, but I listened breathlessly as the speaker told how God had declared that without the shedding of blood there is no remission, but that he had given his only begotten Son, the Lamb of God, to die, and all who trusted in his blood were forgiven all their iniquities. This was the Messiah of the 53rd of Isaiah. This was the sufferer of Psalm 22. Ah, my brethren, I had found the blood of atonement at last. I trusted it. And now I love to read the New Testament and see how all the shadows of the law are fulfilled in Jesus. His blood has been shed for sinners. It has satisfied God. And it is the only means of salvation for either Jew or Gentile. The importance of the blood. Do we not need to see it from the Jewish perspective to understand how they are still without atonement for their sin? Blood and covenants form a lattice work throughout the Bible and blood is spoken about from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat from it, you will surely die. And swiftly through to Revelation 19:11, and he, Jesus, is clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. In Genesis 1 and 2 there's no mention of blood. His work was perfect. It is in Genesis 3 that man loses his relationship with God as a result of his disobedience. And the literal translation from the Hebrew here in Genesis 2 where God says to him, you shall not eat because you'll die, is in dying you will die. That is, if you eat from this tree, Adam, in dying spiritually, you will not only be, you will, in dying spiritually, you will not only be cut off from me spiritually, but that dislocation will cause you to die physically. In dying spiritually, you will die physically. Cut off from the tree, the branch cannot survive. It begins to wither and die. I'm warning you, Adam, do not eat of this tree. And somewhere in the Garden of Eden, this erstwhile paradise, the Lord took an innocent animal, and before the eyes of Adam and his wife he slew it. And as its knees buckled, as the life drained from it, and the ground drank up its innocent blood, Adam and Eve would have become aware of the appalling thing they'd done. 
Through the slaughter of an innocent animal, God made coats of skin and covered their shame and nakedness. This is the first sacrifice, and it was offered by the hand of Almighty God himself. When Adam saw the gasping, spent life of that innocent creature, and when he saw the crimson stain which soiled the ground, it was his first experience of knowing what it meant to die because of sin. So the story of sacrifice and atonement begins and unfolds throughout the word of God. Blood, from this time on, was necessary to restore man's relationship with God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Hebrews 9.22 in the King James Version now, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. The river of blood courses through the Bible. Revelation 5, verse 6, New American Standard. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. A lamb as though slain, a lamb prepared to be sacrificed, a lamb who is sacrificial in its nature. Only through the shed blood of Jesus do we come back into relationship and fellowship with God. What was true for Adam is true for us. We cannot cover our own sin. Only God's perfect sacrifice can do that. Jesus. Lord. Why the blood? Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. The moment Adam was cut off from God, decay started in his body, mind and emotions, and the result was physical death. He'd separated from God, who is eternal life. Death cannot have any relationship with life unless something is done about the death. Life has to be injected into that dead thing. For God and man to communicate, life has to be injected in, and the life is in the blood. Leviticus 17.11 again, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood is the only thing that can cause any agreement between God and man. And the Bible is not squeamish about blood. The emphasis is on the blood continuously. The life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you. Life belongs to God. It is his to give and his to take. If you have any questions about the rights and wrongs of euthanasia, here is the answer. The life belongs to God. Romans 5.12 Therefore, 
just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned as by one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned Adam's sin doesn't seem to be terribly great from our perspective all he did was take a bite of some fruit his sin was serious in that the fruit was of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil of which God said he was not to eat under penalty of death the knowledge of good and evil speaks independence from God and the sin that Adam did was to step away from his dependence on God and become independent of God I will make my own decisions about my life we've lived with that ever since it's the source of all rebellion all difficulty of coming under the hand of God is the basic fundamental fallen nature within us so the tree was placed in the center of the garden together with the tree of life to test Adam's obedience to God's command and that command was given before Eve was created Genesis 2 15 to 18 in the NIV and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it and the Lord God commanded the man you're free to eat from any tree in the garden but you mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat of it you will surely die and the Lord said it's not good for man to be alone I will make a helper suitable for him up to this time Adam was morally innocent when he sinned he by nature became a sinner and as such he died as we've seen he died spiritually immediately and following that began to die physically death was at work in him Adam is the federal head of the human race from whom every other man came we're all descended from him like begets like apples beget apples dogs beget dogs human beings beget human beings since Adam became a sinner before Eve conceived a child every human being descended from him is a sinner just like him with one exception the Lord Jesus Christ because of Adam's sin death entered into the human race this was a literal Adam who literally fell he deliberately sinned whereas Eve was deceived the serpent deceived me some versions say beguiled me and I ate literally the serpent caused me to forget he caused her to forget God's warning through Adam how many times does he cause you to forget what God has spoken to you how many times has he caused you not to be obedient by putting the commands of God and the requests of the Lord to one side still doing the same thing so let's look again at what God does as a result of Adam's fall and sin Genesis 3:21. the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them God makes the point to Adam and his wife 
that in dying spiritually they will die physically. Sin has a penalty and that penalty is death. This is the first time blood was shed on the earth for the sin of mankind. The only thing that can overcome death is life and here the father points to the sacrificial death of his son whose blood carries eternal life which will give that eternal life to everyone who believes. Romans 6.23 in the NIV tells us this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God had a plan, and it wasn't plan B. He was showing them the way that man must now approach him, through the shedding of innocent blood. Sin has a penalty, the penalty is death. Something or someone must die to atone for sin. Something or someone must pay the price to restore the fellowship God desires. The first result of the fall, we're told, is that Cain rises up in anger against his brother Abel and murders him. We're not very far into the Bible when we find this. It's in Genesis 4, uh, verses 1 to 10. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I've brought forth the man. She's already thinking she's brought forth the Messiah, because she knows that that is the way back to God. But no, later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering for the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your dis your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's, brother's blood from your hand. Cain, furious at God's spurning of his offering of the fruit of the field, slits Abel's throat and the ground soaks up his blood. You want this? You want blood? Have this. As a result the very blood cries out from the ground. But the blood of Jesus speaks of better things. Hebrews 12.24 tells us this, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cried out for revenge, but the blood of Jesus speaks forgiveness. Both fell to the ground, but with a totally 
different result. So from Genesis to Revelation we see that without the blood there is no remission, there is no release from the debt of sin. By the death of Jesus on the cross the debt, the price is paid, the penalty for sin is death. In the Old Testament the animal chosen to be sacrificed was innocent but bore the sin of the man. It didn't become sinful in itself, it stood in the stead, in the place of the sinner. There will be another one, slain from before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of the of all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the slain lamb slain from the foundation of the world. They will all worship him. 1 John 1 29, New American Standard Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Through the blood God showed how dreadful sin was so far as he was concerned. God cannot stand the sight of sin, he's too pure to look upon it. That's the point of the blood. Jesus' blood has bought salvation for everyone who will receive it. Jesus' blood has brought us back into relationship with God and we are eternally secure. Sin is dealt with by the blood of the Lamb of God. The sin problem has been solved. What this means for us is that when we get things wrong, when we mess up, we can always point to the blood. 1 John 1 9, King James Version again, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As Gentiles, most of us do not properly understand the heritage of our salvation and the price that was paid for us. Hebrews 9.22, New King James Version, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. The book of Hebrews is a wonderful exposition on the Old and New Covenants and how Jesus' blood is much more effective than the blood of bulls and goats. If we are to understand the fullness of our salvation and our freedom in Christ, a detailed study of this book, which we can't undertake right now, is essential. But I would recommend that um, Derek Prince has done a study on Hebrews uh, verse by verse, goes into the original languages, Take your time and enjoy that because it is a feast. It's absolutely beautiful. So written to Jewish believers, the book of Hebrews, the writer details the difference between the Old Testament sacrificial system and the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, emphasizing continually the preeminence of the blood of Jesus, which is superior in every respect. Just let's look for a moment at Hebrews 9, 1-7, and this is the New American Standard again, headed up the old and the new. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. 
Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. When these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. When Mary sees Jesus in the garden, he'd not yet presented his blood to the Father, so he tells her not to touch him. John 20, 10-16, New King James Version But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? <clears throat> she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He'd not yet gone into the Holy of Holies to present his blood to the Father as the final, all-encompassing sacrifice, which is eternally sufficient. So he says to her, Do not cling to me. Don't touch me. I can't have defilement. I've got the blood. For I have not yet ascended to my Father. He hadn't ascended to pour out the blood, that would put an end to sin forever. Hebrews nine thirteen and 14 For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. A definition of the word atonement is penitence, expiation, to make amends, punishment, apology, compensation, 
reparation, damages and recompense. Sin makes us debtors. We owe, we owe, and Jesus pays our debt. Before we continue, I just want to again clear up a common error and it revolves around 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This verse is frequently taught, I've heard it, and indeed in the Amplified Bible it implies this, that Jesus became the very essence of sin on the cross, taking on the nature of sin. Taking, to the taking it to the ultimate, it would imply that Jesus became a child abuser, a homosexual or a murderer on the cross. He did not. This is totally wrong and it's a misunderstanding of what is being said. The offering of bulls, goats and lambs was just that. They did not become sin. Those innocent animals stood in the place of the sinner. They stood proxy, stand-in, substitute, alternative, replacement and they covered the people's sin with their blood just as happened in the Garden of Eden. But it is a Hebrew way of saying it's the sin offering. He became sin for us is a Hebrew's way of saying he became the sin offering. So the life of an innocent animal is taken in exchange for the sinner's freedom. And Paul is speaking here in the second letter to the Corinthian church to people who understood the sacrificial system the pagans did the same thing they were sacrificing all the time to their gods and again it's because we are Gentile believers we don't understand what's being said Jesus had the sin of the world laid upon him didn't become it just as the priest laid hands on the animal to be sacrificed and by that action the penalty for sin which was death was transferred and the price paid he took the sin of the world completely he did not become it Leviticus 16 21 and 22 in the message makes this pretty clear when Aaron finishes making atonement for the Holy of Holies the tent of meeting and the altar. If you read Leviticus you will understand that everything had to be atoned for. Everything in the world is fallen and so the blood had to cover everything because before it was pure enough to receive the offering for sin of a human being. Stones were not to have uh, any uh, chisel upon them because it would defile them. It is exquisite, the blood of Jesus. So when Aaron finishes making atonement for the Holy of Holies, the tent of meeting and the altar, he will bring up the live goat, lay both hands on the live goat's head and confess all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their acts of rebellion, all their sins. 
He will put all the sins on the goat's head and send it off into the wilderness, led out by a man standing by and ready. The goat will carry all their iniquities to an empty wasteland. The man will let him loose out there in the wilderness. This is the offering of the scapegoat. Two goats were chosen. One was sent away into the wilderness. The other was offered as a sacrifice. Jesus fulfilled both. It's quite clear, therefore, that Jesus did not become sin on the cross, nor did he absorb our sin on the cross, as some say. Hence you get films like that blasphemy of, uh, I don't even remember what the name of the film was, but it was it had Christians up in arms. But the reason for it is the misunderstanding of what the Bible is saying. So he didn't absorb our sin on the cross. He bore the sin away as the offering did in the Old Testament. But unlike the Old Testament sacrifice, his blood did not just cover the sinful nature of man, but because it was eternal in nature, it dealt with the sin issue. It cleansed it and bore it away completely. This is so important, beloved, because if he became sin, then he was unable to make us clean. The animal had to be without blemish, no broken bones, spotless. If it had a blemish, it was not acceptable. You could not bring a torn, broken animal to be your sacrifice. You could not bring an animal that had been ravaged by a wild beast. You had to bring the perfect. And God brings his perfect, spotless lamb. This is so important. It's fundamental. And once you get this in your heart, you will sing for joy at the freedom that Christ has bought you. He was the offering, sinless and spotless. And we can only understand it properly if we look at it from a Jewish perspective. Beloved, a copy of the New Testament is as good as useless to you. It's like just reading the back end of a book and not reading how it started. Don't ever give anyone just a New Testament. They will have half a salvation. They will not understand a thing. The book of Hebrews will be a closed book to them. They will not understand what is being spoken to them. <laughs> they will not understand. So this is what the Jews were looking for. Yeshua HaMashiach. They knew the blood of bulls and goats were only substitutes for the real thing. So it's very important that we get this clear. And I make no apologies for being so passionate about it. When I was preparing this study, the Holy Spirit was so upon me uh, that I thought I would probably burst. <laughs> so the Israelites lives were continually sprinkled with the blood of innocent animals in order to keep them in relationship with God. He didn't want a distance between him and his people. But in order for them to be cleansed from sin, the blood had to be shed continuously until Jesus came. 
They never sinned deliberately because of what they had to go through if they did. The person bringing the offering had to sever the main artery of the animal themselves. You couldn't hand it over for someone else to do. This was your sin and you brought your animal to atone for it. Every heartbeat would have been pushing the life out of the animal, splashing everywhere. And whilst it was collapsing in front of you, you had to co collect as much blood as you could and the colour of everything would have been blood red. So we looked earlier at the Hebrew search for the blood of atonement and he referred to Exodus 12 with the instructions regarding that precious Passover lamb. And in Exodus 12:13 and 14 we see this. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. When I see the blood, I will pass over. Jesus kept the celebration of the Passover. Remember it was the night before his crucifixion. He himself was the Passover lamb. When the Father sees the blood of Jesus, the angel of death passes over us. We will not see death even though we may physically die. We will go straight to be with the Lord. So let's look now at the Day of Atonement. It's Yom Kippur in the Hebrew and it is still kept. In Exodus 25, God gives Moses precise instructions for the erection of the tabernacle and the daily sacrifices. These sacrifices were continual, all day, every day. But only once a year was the most solemn ceremony, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement for the sins of the people. The high priest was given precise instructions on to how, to how to conduct himself and how to sanctify himself and the people. This is awesome stuff. And Leviticus 16, 1-34 gives us the detail. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash, and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, 
and make atonement for himself and his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and his house and shall kill the bull as a sin offering which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side and before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. So he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord, and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull, and some of the blood of the goat, and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it, and consecrate it, from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he's made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions concerning their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garment which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar, and he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood, blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. 
and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. This shall be a statute for ever for you. In the seventh month of the tenth day of the month you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you, to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute for ever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. And then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you, to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. If you wrote a book and repeated things as much as it was repeated in there, you'd be told that you were not a good writer. God goes through those arrangements as he needs them to be precisely about three times. There was no doubt about how the high priest should approach the Lord. They were exquisitely perfect, those instructions. So the Hebrews now, those who are unbelievers, look at this and wail for the Lamb. This day was described as a high Sabbath and a holy convocation. And it lasted from the ninth of Tishri until the tenth the evening of the ninth, that is, until the evening of the tenth. And this year it falls on September the seventeenth, from nightfall to nightfall on September the eighteenth. Could you not weep for them? They have no atonement for their sin because they do not believe Jesus. It's a permanent statute for the nation of Israel. They are still keeping it, but without the blood. And this was the only day in the year where the high priest entered the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of the animals specified by God. Once a year, on that great day, the Day of Atonement, the High Priest would enter the Holy of Holies with the blood of the innocent animals in a bowl, and following these carefully prescribed instructions, he'd sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. If the blood was acceptable, the people celebrated and feasted. Their sins were forgiven for another year. And just in case the sacrifice wasn't received, they'd tie a rope to the High Priest's ankle, so that if he should die before the mercy seat, they could pull him, pull him out. For anyone entering the holy place uh, in the Holy of Holies in an unauthorized way would die, so they would have to pull him out from there if the bells and the pomegranates ceased to ring together. All the time they could hear the noise, they knew he was moving around. But if it went silent, 
they knew the sacrifice was unacceptable and he died and they'd have to pull him out. Beloved, the seriousness of this day in the Jewish calendar cannot be overestimated. It was the most hallowed day and their lives depended on it. The Day of Atonement was a picture, a type, a shadow of what was to come in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The very Lamb of God himself who poured out his blood for the salvation of many. So he says to Mary, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. He was presenting his blood poured out, the sacrificial blood to the Father, in exactly the same way as the High Priest in the Old Testament. He is our great High Priest. The difference is that where the blood of the sacrificed animal covered the sin, the blood of Jesus, as I said before, carries it away as far as the east is from the west, and this blood was sprinkled in the heavenlies. The Message Bible puts it like this in Hebrews 10. It's Hebrews 10, 1 to 18. Sums it up, really. The old plan was only a hint of the good things in the new plan. Since, since that old law plan wasn't complete in itself, it couldn't complete those who followed it. No matter how many sacrifices were offered year after year, they never added up to a complete solution. If they had, the worshippers would have gone merrily on their way, no longer dragged down by their sins. But instead of removing awareness of sin, when those animal sacrifices were repeated over and over, they actually heightened awareness and guilt. The plain fact is that blood and bull goat can't get rid of sin. That's what's meant by this prophecy put in the mouth of Christ. You don't want sacrifices and offerings year after year. You've prepared a body for me for a sacrifice. It's not fragrance and smoke from the altar that whet your appetite. So I said, I'm here to do it your way, O God, the way it's described in your book. When he said, you don't want sacrifices and offerings, he was referring to practices according to the old plan. When he added, I'm here to do it your way, he set aside the first in order to enact the new plan, God's way, by which we are made fit for God by the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. Every priest goes to work at the altar each day, offers the same old sacrifices year in, year out, and never makes a dent in the sin problem. As a priest, Christ made the single sacrifice for sins, and that was it. Then he sat down right beside God and waited for his enemies to cave in. It was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. By that single offering, he did everything that needed to be done for everyone who takes part in the purifying process. The Old Testament sacrifices then were a shadow or type of the sacrifice of Jesus. From this you can really see the significance of the Hebrews' search for the blood. He was still looking and could find no remission for his sin and he found Jesus until he found Jesus, his Messiah. Unbelieving Jews, as I've said before, are the same today. They rest on the law and the Talmud, 
but they remain without the blood which would cleanse them and they know it. They are still waiting for Yeshua HaMashiach because they have not believed in the one whom God sent. They have 2,000 plus years of sin and no sacrifice. They are in a desperate situation. The blood. The Old Testament saints were saved by believing in the one who was to come. The Old Testament looks forward to the cross. The New Testament looks back to the cross. All the Old Testament commandments were fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew 5:17, New King James Version. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. The difference between the Old Covenant and the New was that Jesus' blood was sprinkled in the heavenlies, not on the earth. Though physically it was sp spilt on the earth and speaks of better things, the sprinkling before the mercy seat was in the heavenlies. And the visual aid for this was the splitting of the curtain of the temple at the moment of his death. Matthew 27, 50-53 And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy, holy city and appeared to many. Those who raised were the believing saints. That veil was four to six inches thick, and it was torn by God from top to bottom, the veil, the division that was between man and God, God had removed in the death of his son. This is a tremendous moment, and the visual age is the curtain, split in two, the veil of his flesh. The old covenant was finished, it was finished. The sins of the Old Testament which had been covered had been removed and the Old Testament saints were on their way to be removed. Uh, sorry, to be with the Lord. Those of you who have listened to it, uh, what happens when a person dies, will know that paradise moved at that point. Jesus went and collected the saints who were in Abraham's bosom and took them to the heavenly place need to get the what happens when a person dies if you want to link the two things together. So we must understand the significance of the blood and rejoice in forgiveness of our sin and the power of the blood to remove the sin nature. Hebrews 10.4 For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I should think by now we've seen that the blood of Jesus does. It, his blood didn't just cover it, he dealt with the sin problem. Psalm 103.12 As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. The continued presence of the blood is the only way to forgiveness. We stand only on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus. It is totally efficacious and it always avails for us. 
Hebrews 10 then again 1 to 22 1 sacrifice of Christ is sufficient for the law since it has only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near otherwise they would not have ceased would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshippers having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year for it is impossible for the blood of goats to take away sins therefore he says when he comes into the world sacrifice an offering you've not desired but a body you've prepared for me in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you've taken no pleasure then I said behold I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will O God after saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law then he said behold I've come to do your will whatever has life belongs to God not one soul owns his own life life is the total monopoly of God life is on loan to us from God it's God's property you can't put a price on it in money or years you can't measure it life is priceless the only one thing <clears throat> of equal value is another life and the death of Jesus was bloody it was horrific and it was sufficient